reeling from all the terrible news but not sure how to take action? I'm Kelly. I'm Lila. And this is What Can I Do? Each week, we interview activists about how they took action, what got them started, who helped them along the way, and what they'd do differently next time. In the process, we offer concrete advice on how to take the leap from freaking out on Twitter to making a difference. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. I am Kelly Pollack. This is What Can I Do, the podcast where we help you figure out what to do when you have so much yarn in your house and you're really angry and you don't know what to do. I am here with my co-host, Lila Nordstrom. Hi, Lila. Hey, Kelly. How's it going? It's going really well. I had a couple of thanks Obama moments because I was walking past the Obama Center that's under construction and the whole street is under construction and it disrupted my day. So I got to legitimately say thanks, Obama. Oh, yeah. And we're also recording this right as a big Trump indictment breaks. So we're having just like a it's a very exciting news hour that we're missing to have this discussion, but we'll we'll be able to catch up. Our guest today is Jane Wyman, who's the founder of the Welcome Blanket Project and the co-founder of the Pussyhat Project, which I'm sure many of you remember participating in. We are very excited to have her here. Welcome, Jaina. Our first question and our sort of like first topic of discussion is always, what is your background when it comes to activism? Did you grow up in an activist household? How did you come to political action? That's such a great question. And Lila and Kelly, thank you so much for having me. This is fantastic. With my activist background, I was raised the grandchild of immigrants and refugees and very much raised with the idea that we are so lucky to be in the United States and it's our job to try to make it better. So even if it wasn't necessarily activism, my father's a physician, which you know is about helping people. My mom was both a teacher and an attorney and very much a second wave feminist and was pregnant with me as she was going through law school. So I kind of feel like I was, she had me in the room from the beginning. And she's always been an inspiration in the way that she thinks about causes that she really cares about and she figures out ways to help. So she's worked with a place called Second Step, which is for women who have left abusive relationships, who have, are with their children and are trying to rebuild their lives. And she's been on the board. And because she was an attorney, she'd help with the legal side of things. So it's sort of how can she come you know, into things and help in a way that she can that other people can't. And I think just as understanding that we are here and really lucky to be here. It's always just kind of a neighborly thing of being involved when it matters. Before college, I took a year off and worked on the second Clinton campaign, which completely dates me. And during college, it wasn't activism, but I worked at the White House at the National Economic Council. So I really got to see how hard people in the executive branch um, in the Clinton administration were working on things. And I'm trained as an architect. And I think one of the reasons why I chose architecture was because you think about how people truly mix in the truest sense of the word. And so it's not necessarily activism, but it always goes back to people and how we choose to be with each other. So speaking of that, uh, how we choose to be with each other piece, one of the things that I love about your craftivism is that it is so communal. And we met through the Welcome Blanket Project I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the ways that crafting can be really communal, can bring people together, and, and how you think about that as you're thinking about projects to do in activism. So with 
crafting, I consider myself very much a novice crafter. Like I'm usually the worst person in the room when it comes to things. And I, I kind of get laughed at a little bit, but in the nicest way. And so I think when thinking about crafting, if you think about a traditional sewing circle or knitting circle or, you know, quilting bee of some sort, you can be the absolute worst person in the room and still belong. And I think that that's something that's really important within activism itself. Like your presence and being part of it changes the alchemy of what's happening. And you don't have to have the most skills to be there. I also find that in crafting circles, people listen a lot more. Like we're in this really interesting dynamic where I'm answering questions and we're both trying to be very quiet in between. But in crafting circles, I find I hear things I might never have heard from people because it creates this atmosphere for being able to open up. And I have learned more about life probably from different crafting circles and what people are talking about because you have the time to think about the questions which are also really about to ask and people have the time to actually answer. So that first wonderful. And then the projects that I design are really meant for people along the along the spectrum of introversion. So you can be a total extrovert and be out getting people to be working on a welcome blanket. You you can recruit 20 people or you can be someone who just wants to sit by themselves on their front porch and dedicate themselves to this like this type of project. And I think we're also different from one another designing projects that create the opportunity for more people to join in in the way that makes sense for them is um, something that I'm really interested in doing and designing. I love the idea of creating projects for different kinds of people, for introverts and extroverts, where everyone can kind of use their skills. I'm curious when you're when you're assembling a project that is built around something like crafting or you know or anything really in the arts. How do you create an atmosphere where people who are who are maybe on the more introverted side want to share and talk and listen? What what can you do to create an atmosphere when you're assembling people for any kind of project where the kinds of political exchanges that might help build a movement can take place? That is such a great question. So part of this might be more part of this is more sort of my personal side, which is um, I'm trained as an architect. I was working as an architect. And in 2013, I had a life-altering head and neck injury. And I didn't work at all until Pussy Hat Project, which was my first project back. And that was my way of creating architecture, urban design, you know, the places for people to mix with yarn and local yarn stores versus concrete, glass, and steel. And I think when I approach a project, I, you know, I, I kind of think of who's getting involved and how I want to get involved. I'm an extroverted introvert, so I really do love people. But I also, because of my limitations, there are only certain ways that I can get involved. And one of the ways that I learned how to heal was through crochet and being in these knitting circles. So like, I see the power of that possibility. And I think when the people who aren't necessarily noticed first are sort of designed for, then it creates more room for everyone. I 
I also have many friends who are extroverts and work with many people who are extroverts. And I think often they're in many different places, but I think when it's designed more for people to come in at the first time, maybe for people who kind of have to be extra brave to try something new, like these are beginner projects or it could be extraordinarily advanced projects. But if they're designed to make it easier for people who might not normally get involved, I think there's more wide success. So I want to talk some about logistics, because this isn't just, of course, about design in the sort of artistic sense, but it's about design and, you know, sort of project design and project management. So I, I wonder if you could talk through the the Welcome Blanket project and, you know, going from sort of the idea of it to to actually getting it out there, because the, it's a <laughs> for, uh, you can tell people a little bit about what it's uh, about, but it's a massive logistical challenge. And I was a little bit involved in it toward the beginning. And, and I know how much time I personally, just me, spent um, inputting stuff in a database so can you talk a little bit about that and, and sort of how you figured out, like, what is the next step? How do you know, where, where are we going to go with this? Mm -hmm. So thank you. And thank you so much for being part of the project. I mean, the, the projects that I really like involved and immersed in only happen because other people want to be a part of them. This is not like a solo situation. This is so many people coming together. So for anyone who doesn't know about Welcome Blanket, Welcome Blanket began in 2017 at the Smart Museum of Art at University of Chicago. And the idea is that, you know, at that time, there's a lot of talk of this proposed border wall uh, between Mexico and the United States and this 2,000 mile long wall, which is just so bizarre to even fathom what that means. So what Welcome Blanket does is it reimagines those 2,000 miles of wall is 2,000 miles of yarn to make individual welcome blankets for new refugees coming to the United States. And makers everywhere are welcome to be a part of it uh, with design guidelines of 40 inches by 40 inches, any medium, easy to care for, and it should hurt to give away. And so with these welcome blankets, makers include stories important to their families about immigration, migration, and relocation. So they pack up these beautiful heirlooms with these welcome notes, which is where the stories are, and they send them to a host institution. Then the host institution unwraps them, catalogs them, displays them, has related programming, and it creates this space of welcome and a conversation about immigration issues, which we should all be talking about. So then after the show, these aren't just, you know, going on tour everywhere. After the show, they get wrapped up and gifted to our newest neighbors, refugees and asylum seekers, victims of um, sexual trafficking, uh, through refugee organizations who know how to gift them in a really thoughtful way. So these are items that become symbolic and practical gifts of welcome that someone might make in their living room that goes to someone else's living room. And you can literally touch it, feel it, hold it, know that someone made it just for you. And then we have an online archive. And so if someone receives it, they can go into the archive and not just think, oh my goodness, Kelly's so wonderful. She made me this blanket. They can say, oh my God, there are thousands of people who are doing this. Like, this is something that's really happening. 
and I'm part of something bigger. I might watch the news and hear some really terrible things that people are saying about me. But then there are people who will sit down for 30 hours and put something together, like literally putting their sweat and tears into these pieces of work. And so 7,000 have been made and gifted so far. I think we've had 19 shows and pop-ups. And my goal is to make this an American tradition. I want people of all ages doing this. I want this happening 50 years from now. I want a kid working on this now who, you know, goes through this wave of xenophobia and then it comes back again when he's, you know, in late middle age and says, wait a second, like I worked on this project like a while ago. I learned my family history. We're talking about people like the exact policy. Maybe, maybe we can talk about the ins and outs of the policies, but we really have to be talking about immigration is an issue about people and individuals. And I really hope that this is a project that can really expand the hearts of minds of a lot of people who might not be thinking about immigration issues that often, and also people who deeply care another way to be able to express themselves and be part of this story of migration in the United States. So, you know, we have people of all different immigration stories. And to me, it's really beautiful to see you know, someone who came here from Kenya for grad school next to, you know, someone who, you know, came after World War II as a Holocaust survivor to, you know, someone who came from Japan who had been in a Japanese internment camp. You know, it's just all of these people are all together. It's us. And it's really important when talking about American history that we're talking about us. And so I get I get really into this project because I think I see some of the best in what we can be and who we are. And it's a project that is so based on generosity that the people who get involved with it really tend to be some of the most wonderful people I've ever met. So following a little farther down the line of Kelly's question, how do you identify and vet the host institutions that you go to? Usually it's through word of mouth and conversations. So everything that's really happened has been because, you know, a museum director heard of the project, we have a conversation and it, you know, it just works. Or someone is friends with someone at a museum and is like, hey, have you seen this project? It, it might be really, it might be really good for you. It's never gone completely cold. And part of it is because it's, it, it takes a lot to take this project on. And the alchemy each time is always a little bit different based on sort of what budgets are, who's the person who's really focused on it and like what is their kind of thing. And so it's been growing and emerging and um, something that's been starting to happen, which is really cool, is that local groups have started taking them on. This project on is like something that they really want to do kind of internally. So working with them to be like, okay, like you want to do this in the town of Brookline, like who do we have for refugee organizations that are close by? What are you thinking about? Let's talk this through. Like, where might you show it? And going through that process, because how cool would it be if like there are hundreds of these going on all over the place with this growing archive and it's just what we do and it just becomes who we are. I, I think that would just be beautiful and it's starting to trend in that way. 
And then similarly, can you talk a little bit about the the refugee organizations and and that piece of the sort of logistics of figuring out how to, how does it get from wherever it's being exhibited to the actual people who are receiving it? Yeah, so um, we've worked with over 30 refugee organizations and offices ranging from you know, the federally funded organizations like IRC and HIAS, Catholic Charities, and to neighborhood organizations like Hello Neighbor in Pittsburgh and Mary's List out in Los Angeles. And what's really cool is that each one of them is really different. And from the get-go, I, I often get to this question of why 40 inches by 40 inches? Like, oh my gosh, is it too big? Is it too small? Part of that, or you know, a huge part of that is because we talk with refugee organizations from the get-go of like, what's a good size for you? And so it's this balance between you know having inventory and how much inventory they can hold, being able to give it in a place that they've just set up for someone in an apartment, or do they send it in a box, you know, in a big welcome box? And so that size is really great because it's, it can work with kids, it can work with adults, and it, it can have a lot of variation. And they also know what to expect at the same time. We've gotten really great feedback in that it's something where we can send 50 to one place. And so they can plan for 50. So it really helps concentrate the care and love that people want to give with things. So, you know, if one person called up a refugee org and said, I want to make you a blanket, you're like, well, that's really nice. Like of you, like, I don't know, you know, if we necessarily need that specifically, but if it's the project of, would you like 25, 50, hundred, 200, does this work for you? It's a lot easier for their logistics. So we've done, we've had really wonderful conversations with people who are doing the work. And it's really to support them and what they're doing, you know, day in and day out and making it as easy as possible for them to plan and have things that they appreciate. And a lot of the feedback is that, you know, these are really lovely gifts. Like it's like something you don't necessarily expect. It's just this beautiful thing that you've received from someone else. It's incredibly personal and um, people have been really touched by it. I also want to talk a little bit about both for a project like the Welcome Blanket Project, but also for the Pussy Hat Project. Like, what do you do when something catches on and you have to scale up? Like, I'm thinking specifically just like the Pussy Hat idea just took off like wildfire, you know, kind of hit at a moment where everyone needed something to do. What do you do to make sure that an effort like this can sort of be sustained beyond your efforts? And, you know, as you're talking about, can be sustainable for 50 years, as opposed to just sort of relying on your ability to put time and effort into it? Yeah, that is such a great question. And it kind of keeps me up at night a little bit. With Pussy Hat Project, it was intended to be huge, like by design and by the idea of distributing, we had a distribution system of like, you make one, you take it with you, you bring it to your local yarn store, and those were distribution headquarters. You could send it to our actual national distribution headquarters, which is a McKnight family in Reston, Virginia. And so that was made for a moment. With Welcome Blanket, it's this dance between working with hosts and sort of how big it can really go and sort of how much to push it. You know, at a place like the Smart, they had a lot of bandwidth, um, based on a lot of volunteers and students and uh, really incredible staff who could really take on sort of the deluge when it came in. 
with other places, it's important to be a little bit more sensitive to kind of how noisy to be just because they don't necessarily have access to those many volunteers and staff. But in growing welcome blanket, I'm thinking of how to create sort of like the like the physical foundation of how to make this grow and um, be able to kind of sustain it as it keeps kind of kind of gaining roots in a way. Like a lot of people who participated have participated multiple times too, which is really exciting to me because it means we like tapped on something that really, you know, really, really means something. And so that's part of my figuring out sort of how do we raise funds? Like how do we make this sustainable? And that is like, that's kind of where I'm thinking and then, you know, in the short-term, medium-term future of how to make that strong enough so that we can easily like work with hosts to be able to do this kind of, you know, do this kind of work while they're not totally overwhelmed with what might happen if, you know, some other new crazy thing happens with immigration that makes people really upset. Like Because we know by the nature of what's been happening with immigration, like there's a lot to be really concerned about and a lot of things that people have to say. Just to underscore for a second. So I was one of the volunteers who helped out at the Smart Museum and we would go into the storage room where they were keeping all of the mail and there would be like 20 enormous bins full of packages. And we would just be like, well, here's the bin for today. We're going to go start logging these in. So it was really a massive project. (laughs) It was a really massive project. And truly, like, that's not a one person kind of project. Like that is really people who can truly like dedicate their time. And I know, like Kelly, I know you came back time and time again. Like it wasn't just a one time, hey, I'll come in for like, an hour or two. It's just, it's, it's, I feel like Welcome Blanket is a way of sort of traditional barn building of people coming together to make stuff happen. And I think, I, I, I get really excited when I see other people working on things that I also care about. And it is really energizing to be in the room of people who are, you know, I know it's transcribing notes, but it's, feels so personal when you open this package and you see this note from this person from North Dakota. And like, I've never been there before. You know, like they care about this. I care about this. What's their story? What's happening? Like, look at this. It's so squishy and beautiful. How did they do this? And when you keep doing that time and time again, it like, I don't know if it's like an official endorphin rush, but it's like you have hope of what our future can look like. And you realize there are people all over this country who care about other people and will actually put in the time to show it. A project like this also, I assume, involves a lot of trial and error because you're just kind of trying to figure out how to create sustainable momentum. I'm curious if there's anything that you have tried that you thought was going to work or was going to have a huge impact and did not and how you kind of recovered and regrouped from that experience. Another excellent question. And I feel like they're failures all the time. They tend to just be kind of mini failures. And I kind of brush myself off and go, oops, like, let's try that again. But I think one of one of the things, and this might be helpful for anyone who's, you know, kind of doing longer range planning. So this was set up to have a host institution continuously. And that can be kind of confusing because whenever you, it's like a cruise boat, like you finish a blanket like six months later and you're like, wait, where do I send it? How does this work? And so 
in between shows, there became this massive, like, oh my God, I can't sleep at night. Where are they going next? And then it was looking at who's already working on this project, who's in our network. And we started, we started Welcome Blanket on call. And so it becomes something where it's direct to refugee organizations. So we don't have a physical show currently right now. They're currently being uh, sent to Mary's List in Los Angeles. And it's part of figuring out, okay, like they're able to handle this many. Okay, this is sort of what's happening now. Okay, what sort of, how, how do you change direction at the right time, you know, so that like they're not fully overwhelmed, but there's another place for them to go. Um, so a lot of it is conversations with people and what they're able to handle. You know, like there's some there's some places that are more regional that I kind of hoped would be like national receivers of blankets, but they're not quite there. And so it's kind of figuring out like what can everyone give and really utilizing and leveraging the efforts that people can put into stuff. But like there are tons of failures, like time and time again. And you think like a show might work out and then you find out they're building a new building instead. <laughs> they're going in a massive, you know, like a massive change. So it's stuff like that, or, you know, people might leave, they might be into it, but then they get a position somewhere else. So it's like, this is just kind of what happens with life, right? So it doesn't look exactly how... It doesn't necessarily look exactly how I might have imagined it a couple of years ago, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's like it's growing at the pace it's supposed to be growing at. And I think it's attracting people who are really into it. So I think I think that's I think that's where we are. So between the time that you started the Welcome Blanket Project and now, in addition to there being a global pandemic, you also had a kid. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how being a mom, if it has changed you at all as an activist, you know, how, what what it has changed in, in your life and how you think about that with activism. Could you totally see me when I was like, it's going at the pace it's supposed to be going at, <laughs> which is, you know, kind of the undercurrent of I had a kid. So I... I, I think in having a child, I'm really concerned of what the world is going to look like. And also, what, how am I leading, like as a parent, how am I showing how to show up? And I think I'm really conscious of kind of what I take on. And I also know how to put my pencils down, I think, better than I did before, which before I had a kid, I might have been like softy, but now I think it's actually really pretty great. And it's leading a very full life. And it's demonstrating how important it is to be as balanced as possible. Like I'm not going for fully balanced, but like balanced as possible. And so I think I think it's wonderful. And it's very funny because whenever we, you know, kind of might stop in an art show, he's like, is Welcome Blanket here too, mommy? And I'm like, oh my God, I love you. This is this is fantastic. But just the idea that he feels like he can welcome people, the fact that he can, you know, see his parents, you know, and his mom standing up for something she thinks is important in a way that makes sense for her. And he really likes welcoming people to our house. Like it's very, very funny. Like he's he's very into it. And he's very careful with the blankets that are getting ready to be photographed that are in the living room, you know? So it's like, he understands how important these are. 
And I think he also understands how important these are because he's asked me for welcome blankets a bunch of times. And I'm like, no, sweetie, like these aren't for you. And he's been really bummed about it. And I made, you know, I made him his own, which he's very happy about. But sort of that idea of like, there's a desire because they're so wonderful and beautiful. And he wants one too, I think is a really good sign of success of how wonderful these are that people are making. So that's a very, very long answer. But in short, I think being a parent in many ways makes me a better activist in the way that I want his world to be better. And I want the way that I show up in the world to be a model for how I hope that he might show up in the world or improve upon in the future. Do you have advice for people who are launching these kinds of projects? You know, some of the pitfalls that maybe they should expect, some of some of the, the things that they should look for as goalposts, like anything like that? For people who are thinking about activism projects of the craft variety, I think define what it is that you really want to be doing. Like, what do you want this to be in the most ideal situation and work backwards from there? And I think that that can really help kind of guide decisions that you make. I'm thinking of so many different things that, you know, could become possible. But I think overall, having a good understanding of why you're doing what you're doing and what you hope to accomplish is really good. And also leaving room for the unexpected to happen as well. I mean, I think we know with crafts, like even if you can, I mean, I guess if you're an expert crafter, you do have full control, but I have to say like in what I make, like there are always surprises that happen and you have to decide like, do I rip this out or do I keep going or do I make up something new? And I think that's the same with craft activism projects. And I think that's the same thing with activism as well. Like nothing is perfect. Mistakes will always be made. But I think the point is, is that you try and have an ethos of like, this is, this is both, you know, worth your personal time and potentially the time of others. And just make sure it's worth the time of others as well. And people will join in. I mean, crafters are amazing. Like really just like, really, really amazing. They make stuff out of nothing. And so as it's, you know, as a team, a team of crafters is fantastic. Yeah. And I wish everyone also luck because you do need luck for things to kind of take off. And I think pretending like everything always works out if you have a great plan. I don't know about, you know, I think parents with bedtimes, like it doesn't always work out the way that you planned it. And so I think it's the same with projects and large group projects as well. Is there anything that you wish we had asked you about that we did not? I, I'm not the most natural self-promotion of projects. So I will self-promote as the question. So to find out more about Welcome Blanket, uh, welcomeblanket.org website on Instagram at Welcome Blanket. Technically we're on Twitter and Facebook, but not as much. But please come to Instagram or our website, sign up for our newsletter. I run a once a month craft along for people to just show up and be for an hour. And I love it because there are people from all around. And again, I always learn something there that I didn't know that I had no idea about. And so, yeah, so that I need to make sure that I mention. And also, you know, with Welcome Blanket, Makers are instrumental to this project, but so are connectors. Like anyone who's listening right now who's like, oh, this sounds like a really good project. I should talk to my friend who does this thing that's really interesting and awesome. 
talk to them about it. If you know people at museums or cultural institutions, or you are someone from a museum or a cultural institution, let's have a conversation. If you're an attorney who loves doing pro bono work and you can think of ways that I'm not thinking about this project, you know, give me a call. I think makers are so important. And all of these skills that make this project happen are so important. And so people who've been really important to using the word important a lot, but the people who really brought this project forward, many of them do not craft. They have zero interest in learning how to craft, and yet they still find their ways into this project. So there's space for everyone. I will promote Welcome Blanket as well and say that I think one of the very most meaningful things I ever knit was a Welcome Blanket. So I, I really encourage everyone. And it, it could be a great first knitting or crochet project too. So, And we'll have all of those links in the show notes so that people can get linked to your website and you know connect with you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. And can I ask what made it so meaningful? My grandmother was a knitter. She tried to teach me. I did not learn from her. <laughs> it was pretty terrible then. And she, when she died, she had a, a book of knitting patterns and she was going to make a blanket and she had sketched out like this pattern will be in this corner and this pattern will be in this corner, but she never finished it. And so I took that book of patterns uh, and used the patterns from it, made my own design of what it would look like and knit. I think it was like 16, four by four, so 16 squares and knit it. And my grandmother was an immigrant. So, you know, the, it, it had like that double meaning to me. And I, I, you know, cried a little bit knitting it, but it was just, it was so meaningful to be able to to make that and then give it to, to a new neighbor. I have goosebumps. Jaina, thank you so much for speaking with us. And thank you for all the work that you do. A pleasure. A pleasure. And thank you so much for having me on and having this conversation. It's so, it's so lovely. Like from, you know, like our personal spaces connected across, across the ether. It feels really good to connect. Thanks for listening to What Can I Do? You can find show notes and credits for this episode at whatcanidopodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio used by What Can I Do is in the public domain or used with permission. Original artwork is by Matthew Wefflin and used with express permission. You can find us on Twitter at WhatCanIDoPod. To contact us with questions or guest suggestions, please email hello at whatcanidopodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends.